The following message is from the Church at Greer Station. For more information, visit tcgreerstation.com. Okay, so as Adam just read a moment ago, we are in Ecclesiastes 8, and we will work through that in a moment, but I'm going to ask you to turn to Psalm 73 and put your finger in Psalm 73 for about 10, 15 minutes. We're going to, we're going to get there eventually. All right, so go ahead and flip to the middle of your Bible. It's on page, in the blue Bibles, it's on page 538 in the blue Bibles, all right, so just to prepare you. Now, I want you to think about the worst weather you've ever had to drive through. What is the worst weather you've ever had to drive through? Now, when I was thinking about this this week, I was thinking about this spe- uh, specific instance where I was riding, in, uh, r- riding in, a, in the car with my friend Patrick from youth group. This was many, many moons ago. Patrick had this mid-90s red Jeep Cherokee that um, had this really distinct smell to it, and it wasn't a good smell. I just <laughs> remember vividly the smell of Patrick's 90s Jeep Cherokee. And Patrick was one of my youth group buddies, and I remember exactly where we were. We were just off of Old Stage Road in Simpsonville, and he and I were driving to Phil's Music in Malden. There used to be this music store in Malden where you could go. He would play the guitars, and I'd go play the drums. We, we didn't have any money, so we couldn't ever buy anything, but we'd go to Phil's Music and play music together. And we, you know, we, we had dreams of being a, a Christian punk rock band or ska band or something like that. So Patrick and I were in the car, you know, couldn't afford anything, but heading to go hang out at Phil's Music when the, the sky just unleashed on us. But, but it was winter weather, it was snow. Like the snow started to pour down on us. We're driving through this, and it was one of those instances where the snow is so thick and you're driving through it, you feel like, like Han and Chewie going through hyperspace, you know, with the, the way that the snow is, is coming down. And, and, and thinking back on this, I can't fathom why my parents let me go out with Patrick, of all of my friends, let me go out with Patrick with impending winter weather. Nevertheless, Patrick and I, we were on our journey to Phil's music. And I remember the snow just started to come down and like visibility was not a thing as we were making our way. And so, you know, it felt edgy. It felt exciting. We were listening to loud music. We thought this was, this was a thrilling moment for us driving along through the, uh, through the winter weather when suddenly, I don't remember exactly what happened. We must have hit a patch of ice. Suddenly, I felt Patrick lose control of the vehicle. So he hit some kind of patch of ice and he swerved to the left and he made a hard right turn, and he swerved back to the right, and at this point we could start kind of feeling the the car fishtail in the winter weather, and they did a hard left turn. Apparently, that's not at all what you're supposed to do when things go bad, but this is what Patrick was doing. He did a hard left turn, and I remember with that left turn, it was like he completely lost control of the vehicle, and we went careening off of the road. It was definitely careening. That's how I remember it. Careening off of the road, like there was probably, you know, a little lip. We, we, We got air, we felt like we were floating for a second, and then we landed in this ditch. And I remember we landed in this ditch, and all of the stuff in his back seat went flying forward. We both you know, smacked the, 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 the dash in front of us. And then I remember both of us were like breathing heavy. The dust cleared, and we looked at each other and went, that was awesome. <laughs> that was so great. That was so great. So Patrick and I, of course, as 16-year-old boys would do, we high-fived, and then we got out of the car. We, we pushed his Grand Cherokee out of the ditch, we got back on the road, and we went to Phil's Music and continued our day together. Now, when was an instance where you found yourself driving through bad weather? Was it, was it bad snow? Was it bad rain? Was it dense fog? Have you, ever, have you ever had your visibility limited by fog, by smoke, by a cloud that settles in and you can't quite see left from right? Now, the preacher 
the, the one who's speaking to, 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 the, to the readers in the book of Ecclesiastes tells us that sometimes, in fact, oftentimes, life is like dense fog. It's as if our visibility has been inhibited by a cloud that has just sort of settled on things. Like driving through bad weather or heavy fog, our lives kind of march on in this expected kind of way until, bam, something happens and it's unexpected. Things big or small happen. It's a death or it's a diagnosis. It's an unexpected move, an unexpected hurt. Things surprise us and we realize that there's just no good reason or explanation for them. We might wrestle with the how and the why, but we're not given any kind of answers, at least no clear answers, and we're just kind of left with this conclusion. Sometimes life is like vapor. Sometimes life is like a vapor has settled on things and we just can't quite see through it. We can't penetrate to the how and why of things. Now, Ecclesiastes is a a book about the good life. It's a book about wisdom. It was written hundreds of years before the life of Jesus, and it's devoted to thinking about living life well. And we've said it again and again that this kind of central metaphor that runs through the book is that everything is hevel. Hevel is the Hebrew word that's translated oftentimes as vapor. And he does three things with this. First thing he does with this is he says that our lives are vaporous in the sense that our lives are brief. They're momentary. James picks up on this when James says, you know, why do you plan for tomorrow? You, you're but a breath. You're like a vapor. Your lives are, are, are misty and vaporous. They come and they go in a hurry. He also says that our lives are vaporous in the sense that, they're, that, that life is insubstantial. He asks in chapter 1, verse 3, you know, what does man gain with all of his toil? And the conclusion is nothing. Naked we came, naked we go. It's like whatever empires and kingdoms we might build, we're going to be leaving that eventually. Life is vaporous in that sense. And then in the third sense, life is foggy. It's vaporous in that it's, 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 uh, it's inscrutable. We just can't make sense of things. Sometimes the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer. Life is foggy. There's no discerning things. There's limits to our knowledge. And today in this passage, the preacher offers a series of reflections around evil and injustice and on bad leadership and on wickedness. And one place where things get really foggy, one place where we really feel the limits of, the, of our knowledge, of our ability to wrap our mind around things, is this question. Why do bad things happen to good people? Why do bad things happen to good people? Now, the place I, I remember really first coming to terms with this was when I was around 16 years old, and Patrick's foster sister, the same Patrick, his foster sister was killed by a driver who was under the influence. At 12 years old, she was walking to a, a, a general store to grab a candy bar, and someone who was under the influence hit her and killed her and took her life just like that. And I remember exactly where we were when Patrick got the phone call. And that, for the first time, felt, I mean, it felt so senseless and it felt pointless. There was no good reason for that. It was like, it was unjust that the person under the influence kills, yet their life remains intact. And maybe you've been there before. It's, it's, life is inscrutable and there's just not answers to questions like this. So how does the preacher speak to it? And what kind of responses does he call us to in light of this question and others like it? That's what we'll see in our passage today. Now, in verse 1, this chapter opens with a reflection on dealing wisely with rulers and authorities. We won't spend a ton of time here, uh, but this reflection transitions then into a few more reflections around these big questions. So let's look at verse 1. The preacher asks, Who is like the wise? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. 
Because he, he acknowledges, we talked last week that uh, wisdom is an advantage. It's no guarantee, but it is an advantage. And he seems to be celebrating wisdom. Wisdom is like a, it, it reduces the hardness in one's face. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a balm for one's soul. Wisdom, wisdom is good. It gives you certain understanding, but it doesn't give you comprehensive understanding. Wisdom's good. Verse 2. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme. And who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there's a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? Now this is a reflection on interacting with the king. And this is not necessarily something that I anticipate any of us doing in the near future, necessarily. But it is worth mentioning here, we, we get a bit of a glimpse into the Bible's view of authority. How, how the Bible and how Proverbs and how the wisdom literature and Scripture itself, how the Word of God speaks into our posture before authority. And the first thing that we can acknowledge from here is that, that the Bible's view of authority is that authority is good. Authority is good. Good authority is a blessing, it is good, and it is life-giving. I read this week in 2 Samuel chapter 23, verses 3 and 4. These are King David's last words. Get a load of this. This is so good. King David says, When one justly rules over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. The scriptures has a, have, have a positive view of authority, and we see in passages like 2 Samuel 23 that authority is given by God, and it's intended to be life-giving, enriching. Now, before we go any further, it's, it's worth kind of pausing for a moment, and for, for people who hold positions of authority, be that parents or husbands or pastors or uh, you're a, a boss, any presidents in the room, whatever you might be, for people who hold positions of authority, it's worth kind of pausing here for a second and considering that what's present here in 2 Samuel chapter 23 and asking, am I leading like this? Like, would somebody accuse my leadership of being like the morning light? Would somebody accuse me of, 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 of leading like the sun shining forth on a cloud this morning, like rain that nourishes grass and allows it to sprout from the earth? Are we leading in such a way that we are enriching and drawing out goodness in people? That's a question for us to consider, just kind of briefly. A second question for us to consider is each of us, each of us all being under authority somehow, somewhere, some way, it's worth reflecting, am I, am I responsive to good leadership? Or do I just assume that all leadership is necessarily evil? Am, am I responsive to good leadership? Do I, do I allow leadership to draw good out of me, to be like light for me? In this text, authority isn't just, in this text in Ecclesiastes 8, Authority isn't just good and life-giving. It's actually God-ordained. Look at verse 2. Keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. What he's saying is that God is the one who has set the king up in this position of authority. And we therefore have a responsibility to respond well to the king. Even if he's a bonehead, to respond well to the king. In our homes, in our church, at work, in society at large, authority is from God. It is life-giving, and it's good. And we are on the hook to respond well to authority. In fact, wisdom, in verse 5, looks like knowing how to relate well to authority. 
Wisdom looks like knowing how to honor authorities, how to properly push back when it's appropriate. There's a time and place to push back on authority. It's knowing how to do that. And it's knowing how to be leadable by authorities. And wisdom also sees that our response to authority is bound up in our view of God, the God who has sovereignly put those authorities in place. Now, this kind of talk immediately gets our modern Western alarm bells going off. It's like authority, ding, 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 ding. We should talk about that because there is, there's a lot of bad authority and there's a lot of cultural distrust in authorities and institutions. And many of us ask, when we, when we hear talk about authority, immediately we, we ask this question, well, what about bad authorities? That's a legit question to ask because authority has been corrupted this side of the fall. And our personal experience and the podcasts we listen to, they talk about the downfall of authority, Right? The Bible speaks to that as well. The scripture speaks to authorities and they say, don't be bad authorities. You know, lead and rule and be just and in the fear of the Lord, be like the Lord Jesus. Fathers, don't be harsh to your families. Pastors, be an example to the flock with tenderness. Governors and kings, rule with justice and equity and recognize that you have a short leash because God is the one true king over all things. And also, the scripture speaks to those having to endure up under bad leaders. Look at verse 8. No man has power to retain their spirit or power over the day of death, not even kings. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. The preacher seems to be saying here that no man, not even the most powerful, not even the king, has authority over his death And what he's offering is a word of comfort. Even bad leaders die. Verse 9b, when man had power over man to his hurt, i.e. a bad leader, the preacher observes that he doesn't have the, possess the power to retain his spirit. In other words, that a king, as powerful as he might be, he can't control when he's going to die. And that's a comfort. Hevel, up to this point in the book, has been a source of frustration and something bordering on despair. But actually, Hevel can be a source of comfort. Listen, thankfully, evil is a vapor. All is vapor. Everything's a vapor. Everything's impermanent and transient, including evil. And that's encouraging. More on that in a second. Now, these reflections lead him to more reflections about the nature of injustice and evil in the world more broadly. And it's really compelling and relevant, I think. Look at verse 10. He says, Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. First thing that he sees here, we'll have this on the screen, is he says, I see the wicked celebrated. These corrupt, horrible people are celebrated in the cities where they did evil. They were walking willy-nilly into the temple to and fro. I look around and I wonder, am I, am I losing my mind? Am I the only one who recognizes that this person was bad news and yet this wicked person seems to be celebrated? I see the wicked celebrated. Verse 11. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. The wicked aren't punished for their evil. He says justice is delayed, so the hearts of humanity are given to wickedness. He observes that people realize they're getting away with stuff, and the result is the wicked run rampant. Verse 11. And then skip down to verse 14. There's a vanity that takes place on earth. 
that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. Like you said in chapter 7, like you said elsewhere in the book, I see the wicked prosper and the righteous, uh, the righteous punished. It is not supposed to be this way. I see wicked running rampant. I see evil prospering. It's not supposed to be this way. Evil doesn't win. Batman gets the Riddler at the end of the story, always. The wicked aren't supposed to prosper. Things aren't supposed to be that way. Like the death of Patrick's sister, who wasn't supposed to die. The intoxicated person, that's the one who's supposed to die. The reckless, those are the ones that are supposed to die. Not people like Caleb. This passage in Ecclesiastes is reminiscent of Psalm 73. Let's turn to Psalm 73. I love reading through the Psalms. The Psalms are incredibly relevant, deeply, deeply relevant at all times. And the Psalms, you can find a Psalm for every condition and every moment in the Scriptures. I I love working through the Psalms, and this one is, is no exception. Psalm 73, look at verse 1. The psalmist says, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. All right, so he says, I, I stayed faithful, but I, but I nearly tripped, I nearly lost it, I nearly stumbled when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Verse four, for they have no pangs, there's no aches, There's no pains. They have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. Maybe fat and sleek doesn't speak to you. So, I don't know, chiseled and, what's the word, Peggy? (laughs) Muscular, there you go. (laughs) Fat and sleek. Verse five. Listen to this. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. They, They see the wicked and they're growing rich, and their bodies are muscular. They have no pangs until death. They have no issues like the rest of us. They are wealthy at, like, with ease. They are effortlessly beautiful. Their children, are, are, their behavior is impeccable. It makes no sense. Now, I remember when I was in college, I saw the, an interview of a, a particular celebrity, who is, a celebrity who is known for their debauchery. And what stuck out to me about this interview was the interviewer said, if you could tell God one thing, what would you say? And the person said, I would tell God, thank you for this amazing life that he's given me. And I I remember it just made my blood boil because it's like you live a debaucherous life and in no universe should you stand before God and thank him for the life that you've lived. It's, It's not supposed to be that way, right? They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Verse six, therefore pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. It's like they, they, they realize what they're, what they're doing, and so they, they really lean into it. There's no, there's no, there's no justice. There's no punishment. There's no, there's no corrective to my behavior. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. Their wickedness increases. Verse 8, they scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say... How can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Verse 12. Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. 
Verse 13, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Verse 16, but when I thought how to understand this, when I, when I thought how to understand why the wicked prosper and I suffer, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Sounds a lot like the preacher in Ecclesiastes. How can we understand this? How can we get an answer to the question of evil and wrong and bad authorities? Is there anything that can pierce the fog for us? Verse 16. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes sleep, then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. So what is the answer? What is the answer to why the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer? Why, why do bad things happen to good people? And the answer is, we cannot find it out. That's what the preacher would say to us. We cannot find it out. It's hevel. It's too foggy to see, and it's too unclear to know, and we just have to land here. All is hevel. We cannot discern or understand the work of God and why he allows the things that he does. It's like trying to look through a dense fog. But we are not without hope. Because this passage gives us three ways to respond. The first, a little bit of a twist. First, be comforted by Hevel. Look again at verse 10. I see the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. Deep breath, big sigh of relief. Thankfully, this also is vapor. This is vapor. Look at verse 14. There is a vanity or a vapor that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said, deep breath, deep sigh of relief. Thankfully, this also is vapor. We can find comfort in the heaven knowing that evil, injustice, wrongdoing, bad leadership, all of this is light and momentary. All of this is as wispy and as vaporous as a puff of smoke. Evil is terminally ill. Wickedness is the light, fleeting, ephemeral thing. And so we can have patience and hope. We can look at evil and we can know that evil is not going to win. Evil is not the story. The evil that we see and that we experience, we can be confident that it will one day pass away like a wisp of smoke. Evil is not the real thing. The good is the real and the true and the good and the beautiful. We can be comforted by the hevel. The second thing comes from verses 12 and 13. We can fear God and be confident in his justice. The preacher says, Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. In other words, though his wickedness may increase under the sun a hundred times over, the Lord will right all wrongs. 
There is no evil deed, there is no injustice, there is no wrong that the Lord Jesus will not himself personally address. Psalm 73, the wicked are fat and sleek, always at ease, increasing in riches. I devote myself to righteousness in vain. I break my body, what seems like to no avail. But verse 16, when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. God will not tarry forever. God will address all injustice, all evil, and all wrong. So when we see these evil things take place, when we see these things that happen that we just say in our heart of hearts, this is not the way it's supposed to be, the answer is that that's correct. That is not the way it's supposed to be. And the Lord Jesus will himself address it. So we're to be comforted by the hevel. We're to to fear God and be confident in his justice. And the last thing, a familiar refrain. We're to set a table in the mist. Set a table in the mist. Look at verses 15 through 17. This is definitely a twist. This is is not what you expect him to say. Verse 15. And I commend joy. Joy. For man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go through him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. He says we, we have no answers to these things. There's, there's no answer to the, to the problem of evil, to these big questions. It's like a fog. We have no clear answers as to why God does the thing that he does. And yet he calls us to joy. Not vague optimism or groundless well-wishing, but rock-solid hope, joy in Jesus. You know, it strikes me, I mean, if you were to take, it's almost like we need a, we need a strong sense of, of Jesus who is, who is able and is willing to right all wrongs to keep us sane and to keep us joyful. It's like you, you can't have one without the other. You can't have joy w- w- with the knowledge that, or, or with the belief that Jesus isn't going to address this. And you, uh, and you, and you can't, uh, uh, whatever the inverse of that is, you can't have that one either, right? The preacher commends joy. Imagine that the greatest thing we could do, the most powerful week of response, uh, powerful response we could muster in the face of evil is to enjoy pizza together after church. To, to come together in our community groups and to play games that Steph Norris dreams up and enjoy it is, is the greatest, uh, the most powerful uh, uh, testimony against the powers of evil and justice in the world that we can muster is, is to feast and to enjoy the drink that the Lord gives us and the food that he gives us and the work that he gives us. All in the hope that King Jesus will make all things right in his timing. One of the most compelling things to me about the Christian faith is that Jesus himself suffered as a righteous man. He saw the wicked perish. He suffered and had his body broken as a righteous, innocent man at the hand of evil authorities. And Jesus did so to put an end to the hevel triumphing over it to give us a clear and sure hope. Hear these words from 2 Peter chapter 3. Peter writes, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, 
and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with the roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. There is so much that isn't clear. There are so many answers that we don't have and that we will never have. But there is one thing that the scriptures are crystal clear about. There is one thing that we do know. There is one place where the veil is lifted and the fog clears. And it's that Jesus wins and he will write all wrongs and he will renew all things. And that buoys us and steadies us and strengthens us and gives us joy, enables us to rejoice in the face of unspeakable unfathomable darkness and evil. The Lord Jesus reigns over all things and the Lord Jesus will make all sad things untrue. And I don't have answers beyond that, but we can rest in what the scriptures reveal Jesus to be. Each week in our bulletins, we produce questions for reflection. And we always encourage our body during the next few moments of our service to turn, to turn our attention to those questions for reflection and sit for a moment and ask the Holy Spirit to speak, to, to probe your heart, to identify things in, in this passage that speak to your particular situation. Ask Jesus to speak to you about how he would have you to respond to the things that have been said tonight in these scriptures. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come needy and broken. We come weary and heavy laden. We come frustrated and to the point of despair. And yet we come with confidence knowing that you are strong and that you are kind, that you, you love us and you want to hear from us and you, are, and you are God who strengthens his people and we pray, Lord Jesus, that as we look to you, you would strengthen us. I pray we would be strengthened knowing that we, we serve a God who himself suffered unjustly. And we pray that we would pray to you, strengthened with the knowledge that you will return and you will make all things right, Lord Jesus. I pray that, the, that your return, Lord Jesus, would, would press us to holiness. But it would also press us to joy that we would set tables in the mist, in the face of the heaven, in the face of evil and darkness, that we would be a, a people beaming with light, the, the light of Christ. I pray that would be true of our church, that we would be people of joy and rejoicing and rejoicing together, enjoying the life that you've given us together, that we would be eager to outdo showing honor to one another, that we would be eager to bear burdens, that we would be eager to care and lift one another up 
pray, Jesus, that your spirit would be evident among us as a church family. And I pray for folks who are in attendance here tonight who are who come deeply wounded by some of the things that we have touched on tonight. And we pray that through these scriptures, through the honesty of Ecclesiastes and the honesty of the preacher, that they would see something of the hope that we have in Jesus. We love you, Jesus. We thank you for for being our God, for giving us a hope that transcends death, that that reaches even beyond the grave. And we pray that you'd be magnified in our singing in the next few moments. Pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.